curious, competitive, compassionate. Salespeople are drawn to their careers in much the same way musicians are drawn to music. Once you've learned the language of sales, the beauty is in your ability to personally interpret what you've learned to suit your personality, your interest, and your skill. My name is Roger Burnett, and this is the So You're In Sales podcast, where we consider ways to grow as people as we advance in our careers and learn firsthand from those ahead of us on the path to accelerate our journey. I'm lucky to get to talk every two weeks with entrepreneurs, business owners, thought leaders, authors, and people of all walks of life, each with a unique story to share and a look at their lessons along the way. Prepare to be educated, informed, entertained, and inspired. This is the So You're In Sales Podcast. The So You're In Sales Podcast is sponsored by Social Good Promotions. Social Good Promotions was founded on the premise that any business can stand out from their competition when they are doing things they really believe in. True success these days is measured by the ways your employees feel about working for you and the ways your business is making the community a better place. Ultimately, it's about the ways you and your business will be remembered. If you're looking to grow your sales revenue while activating social good at the same time, we'll be your favorite marketing partner ever. Book a meeting with us at socialgoodpromotions.com, follow us on Instagram at sogoodpromo, and let's get connected. We've done great work using our unique and effective strategy. Let us show you how. Now, on with the show. In life, there are doers and there are talkers. My guest today falls squarely in the former category. As a 14-year veteran of the promotional products industry as both a supplier and a distributor, one of the newest members of the ASI Power 50 list overseeing new business development for Shumsky and Boost Rewards, Jill Albers is truly a force to be reckoned with. With consistent sales production north of $5 million, Jill and her team have truly built themselves for the win, and the results are their indicator of success. When she's not conquering the business world, Jill can be found in the outdoors somewhere with her friends and family, husband Ryan and kids, Breck and Charlie. Welcome, Jill. Hi, Roger. Good to have you on. It's always fun for me when I have folks that I've known for a while, as I've mentioned in other podcasts, the beauty of the time that we've had together gives me some context to our conversation, and I'm sure it's making you quite nervous. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. Very true. (laughs) Well, because if you think about it, you know, I've had the good fortune to be either a participant or maybe a witness to most of your sales career. So I feel like I have a little bit better perspective on the arc of what's happened to you than most people, right? When I mean, you'd think that was fair, right? Uh, I would say that's a fair statement, yeah. yes. So, uh, you know, let me use that perspective. I promise I'll be kind, no worries. But uh, I'll use that as the vantage point to serve as the basis for what I want to ask you about the industry and sales in general. So you good with that being the topic of discussion? Sounds great. All right. Let's get into it. So you started as a supplier, right? Yes. So that dates back to, gosh, the early 2000s, mid 2000s, early 2000s. Early 2000s. Early 2000s. Uh, I started in marketing at Visions Awards and uh, it's history from there, (laughs) but yes, quite long ago. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So 
when you talk to people from the industry, there's always sort of this uh, banter that goes back and forth for people when they've crossed over to the dark side, as people will like to call it. And the funny part for me is the term crossed over to the dark side is really universal. So when distributors become suppliers, they've, quote, moved over to the dark side and vice versa. So um, there you were at that moment when you were trying to make that decision about making the crossover to the dark side. So talk a little bit about that and sort of what was the impetus for the decision making around that switch for you? Okay. Um, I loved what I was doing at Visions and Marketing, and I learned so much about the promotional products industry. Um, But because my passion is marketing, I was working on all these really great client accounts for them and helping the distributor salespeople come up with ideas for their customers and their awards programs. I was brainstorming with them and helping them put together creative And I kind of thought, how fun would it be to do this with a lot of customers to be able to work with their brands and and come up with creative ideas to drive results in the business? And, uh, you know, Fran Ford, when I was working with him at Visions um, early on, said, you'll be a distributor salesperson one day. And that's really before I really even thought about it. And I just kind of looked at him and but how do you know that? And about two years later, that was the actuality. Um, you know, and it was a really nerve wracking jump. I mean, it was one of those moments in life where you dig down deep in your gut and you say, what am I doing? Cause I really know nothing about this. Um, and I'm jumping over young and I have a really steady job and I like what I'm doing already. Um, but I took the jump and I love the distributor side. I love the interaction with the brands and the customers and, um, putting together that perfect promotion and coming up with a great marketing idea. That's kind of, you know, my high um, in this business. It was definitely the right move for me. I will say I, um, I excel on the distributor side. I can't imagine going back, but I appreciate what all you suppliers do. I give you props and uh, I know it's very hard work. We can't do it without you. No doubt. No doubt. And I, uh, a, I wholeheartedly agree you are. You were meant to be a distributor salesperson. It was obvious to me from the moment that I met you that you were going to have a bright future on that side. And to me, you know, having made the opposite choice, the uh, the dichotomy between the two is when you represent a product line, a singular product line, a catalog. Let's call it a catalog. Regardless of the number of lines that are in that catalog, you're still only representing those items that are in the catalogs that represent whatever your brand wants to present to the marketplace. And the challenge sometimes is being able to craft solutions around the products in your own portfolio to meet the needs of what you're being shown from an opportunity perspective. So for someone like yourself with a lot of creativity, having that broader product spectrum at your fingertips obviously makes for a much broader selection of solutions that you can present. And secondarily, and I just learned this recently, and I wanted to touch on it just briefly. In some instances, distributor salespeople have the opportunity to create brand new products of their own, correct? So why don't you talk a little bit about that opportunity that came up for yourself and kind of how that came to be and what that's meant to you? Yeah. Um, I mean, you're always going to need your staple base of promotional items, but there is the opportunity to develop your own creative product. And with my background in the words category, as you know, you know, you're going to really create something custom when you do it in the word space, there's an 80% um, retention rate on the product because reinventing that wheel on a custom award 
you know, somebody's just not going to do it with somebody else. So the renewal business in that space is gigantic. And um, you really can create something that's true to the brand of the organization and speaks to their goals and the direction of the ward. So um, that's a really amazing category to be able to do it in. And other categories, you know, the um, doing something completely custom and creative comes with higher minimums, as we all know. And uh, the customer has to have the appetite for that and, and also the need for it. Um, and, and you ha- really have to guide them on if, is it the right way to go for inventory or not? Because sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. If they want to change up their product more often than not, you can come up with something very custom with just really mixing up the artwork on a product. Make a stock product look completely custom, you know, with great art or what you're applying to it. So, um, you know, both ways work great. And, and I feel like it's got to be in the best interest of the client at all times. Sure. And, you know, from my time in the distributor side of things, calling on Fortune 100 clients, a lot of times we, you, you reach this moment where, especially on the procurement side, you know, most of the time the procurement of promotional products is separated from the raw materials procurement that is, you know, core to the business of whatever it is that the organization that you're selling to is employed doing on a day in and day out basis, but the procurement process is very similar. And so when you're when you're competing for that big business, a lot of times you have to sit with the procurement people and they look at our margins and then they look at the commodity margins that they're paying on the things that uh, comprise their raw material base. And you know, most of the time what you get is kind of a scowl, right? And mm-hmm. the conversation that I know I've had with buyers and I'm sure you've had the same and you, know, you were able to convince some buyer to do something completely custom in that way, Whereas most of the time that discussion with procurement sounds something like, how do I reduce my overall spend? And it's by mm-hmm. consolidation of product categories. And, and I'll just use a quick example of a previous client that I had that we had this discussion. So he wanted to know how to get cost out of his writing instrument category. Mm-hmm. And my message to him was, I could build you a completely custom line of pen products, including custom PMS matching for all of the barrels for your pens, if you will... Uh, commit to only buying those products from that catalog when I put that together for you. And that's sort of where you have that fork in the road between the marketing and buying teams and the procurement teams, because certainly the procurement people see all of the value in doing that. But oftentimes what you're doing is you're taking away that element of choice from the buyers at the street level and they know like that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, So, so it's this push and pull, right? But when you find those moments where you have an opportunity to really go custom, it can be really gratifying. And I'm sure that you felt something very similar in those opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think in what we do in distributor sales, it's a lot about being able to get everybody on the same page um, in the organization, whether it be procurement or HR or marketing, depending upon where the promotion is lying. And try to find um, what's in it for each one of those groups with the product that you're selling. And a lot of times that is custom. Like you said, either reducing overall inventory, reducing risk, having stock when they need it. Um, But our job is really to make sure everyone's happy and and be able to show the benefit for each and, and get everybody in the same room and make them understand why you're suggesting what you're suggesting and that you're the expert and that, um, you know, kind of open the robe, as I say, and, and let them, you know, know what you're doing, be, being transparent. And, and that's what I do and be very transparent about what the benefits are for them and, um, you know, why we're selecting the products that we're selecting, regardless which scenario it's in, um, is very important. 
Of course. Yeah, no doubt. So before I get too far away from it and my brain forgets to ask you this question, I want to jump back to, um, you mentioned Fran Ford. So Mm -hmm. um, Fran has, I think if we were to put a list of people that Fran has mentored in the industry, I think we would run out of space on any piece of paper. Um, Mm -hmm. And you're no exception to that rule. So I wanted to kind of not touch on Fran specifically, but more on the part of mentorship and the role that having mentors has played for you um, in your development along the way in your career. So um, um, like, how did you find those mentors? What have they meant for you? And and, uh, what would you offer in the way of advice for someone who might be motivated to do something similar? Um, I, I was very lucky and that Fran was there very early on in my career and kind of, you know, showed me the passion for product products and his passion and, and what the idea of the brand was. I mean, in marketing goes all the way back to college when I had a professor who was really just passionate about brands and brand loyalty and what that meant made me fall in love with brands at that time. Um, and I fell into promo, so I fell into the perfect spot for myself. Um, but I found mentors organically, um, and I was lucky that they were at each organization that I went to, whether it was Fran or whether it was a Tommy Lewis or Mike Emhoff, um, at Shumsky today. Um, I had people who, you know, took interest into what I was doing and, and yourself and being able to take the phone calls at all hours of the day when I had questions and, um, you know, the, the biggest takeaway I could say is ask the stupid questions to these people and ask them if they will, you know, be your mentor and don't feel like anything is stupid because, you know, it's, it's easier to ask a question than to sit and dwell on it for two weeks and try to figure out which way you should go. <laughs> um, and, and you're always going to need to make up your own mind because everybody has their own personal brand and everybody does things, especially in distributor sales you know, my clients are completely different than somebody else's clients because people choose you for what they're looking, you know, t- to buy from. You know, some people want somebody who's going to be very direct. Others want, you know, people who are more conservative. You know, everybody's going to have a salespeople that matches their personality. Um, so you definitely have to be yourself. But I think that you need to learn from others and what has happened in the past industry. I mean, I sat at 100 you know, 10.30 p.m. industry dinners with a table of, you know, much older folks than myself when I could have not been going to those and doing other things because I wanted to absorb all that I could learn, you know, from those people and and what the industry was about in the past. So I highly recommend it. And it was very important in my career development. There's a lot there. Um, So one, it sounds to me like the first step in the process is – being willing to be vulnerable and afraid to ask for help or not afraid to ask for help. Um, Absolutely. That's, that's a tough Mm -hmm. one, but um, hopefully there's enough body of work behind overcoming that fear, especially as I am continuously touching on this topic with folks. And the most common thread that we see in these discussions is you have to not be afraid and you have to be willing to reach out and ask those questions, I guess. But on the other side of that, like, um, a lot of times people just don't know where to turn for that kind of advice. And, you know, as an aside to our interview, I just I want to mention to the listenership, if, if you're not aware of the Promo Kitchen Mentorship Program, promokitchen.org, look for the mentorship tab. 
there's tons of people waiting to offer you advice and help and guidance. You don't have to be afraid. There's mechanisms in place for you to be able to find that kind of mentorship if you're not able to be out on the road. Because, Jill, I guess one of the things that I would say is you were able both from um, having worked with Fran at a WordCraft directly, but also by being out on the road with Fran mm-hmm. and all of the people that Fran knew, you had sort of a fast track to those mm-hmm. discussions. So, you know, I just want to make sure that people who are listening aren't thinking to themselves, well, Jill had a benefit over me that I can't accomplish. And so what makes anybody think that I'm going to be able to do this? So there's other ways to do it. But the first and most important step in that process is being willing to overcome your fear and and take that first step, right? And you have to get yourself out there and network. I mean, your network is of, of people in this business. It's a small industry is more important than anything. Being able to pick up the phone or send a text or send a snap or whatever and talk to somebody at a company that you need to work with or you know, have a question, have an ask, you have to immerse yourself in the business. You have to read the publications and, and listen to podcasts and be involved, um, you know, and truly immerse yourself in what's going on if you're going to get better because this business is changing, you know, faster than I've ever seen it change. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's changing, you know, monthly now instead of annually. And I only expect that to increase. And if you don't keep your knowledge base up and, and know, you know, what the trends are, um, you're not going to be competitive out the marketplace. That's important as well. Yeah. And for those of us who were fortunate enough to have the benefit of mentorship, we're certainly all sitting here waiting for the opportunity to turn around and, and lift someone up behind us. So uh, really, I mean, we can't belabor the point enough. So I will leave that one alone. So, <laughs> um, so you know, be, being the um, $5 million producer that you are, th- that you grew to that. But the thing that I would say is if there was a sacrifice that you had to make in that process as your business grew from 1 million to 3 million to 5 million or whatever growth trajectory that took was you had to sacrifice time away from your family. And um, Shemsky's got customers nationally, internationally, you know, your responsibility is to maintain those personal relationships with Shumsky's best accounts, which means you have to get on a plane and you have to be places, which means you have to be away from your family. And, you know, I've watched as that process has evolved for you over time. And as your success has grown, the way that you've managed that process has changed as well. So why don't you talk a little bit about what that's meant for you and how it's changed and maybe what the difference has been as a result? Yeah, I, you know that whole process because I think I was on a way to a meeting when I called you and told you I was pregnant. You were like, what? <laughs> What's happening? How are you do this now? Um, my daughter will be 10 in July. So, um, yes, it is time away. I say quality time versus quantity of time. Um, there are people out there that are firemen and in the military and doctors and, you know, they're away from their families on holidays. Um, we're away from our families during the business week. Um, so I, I don't feel, you know, like it's taken that much away um, from my time. But it's definitely dedication. I miss birthdays, anniversaries. Um, and we always celebrate when I get back. That's just the way life is. Um, whether it's being there in the, with a the client, 70% of, you know, the conversation that you're having with someone is body language. I think they say 20% of it is, is tone of voice, 
So if you're only online and you're only communicating, you know, there's 90% left up and I'm about getting on a plane. I want to be in front of somebody, whether it's a prospect, um, you know, major clients at least four times a year for business reviews. I mean, nobody has time for weekly meetings rarely any longer. Um, but that's what it takes. It, it takes being there and understanding what's going on in their business. And you have to make it work for you. You know, I have a village. I literally live in a village. It has two stoplights and 2,200 people <laughs> and a very close knit friend circle and family circle. And, um, my parents, but you know, I put the things in place so I can be gone and, you know, we have the best of both worlds. So it's a challenge, but you can do it. And, um, you, you just have to set yourself up for success. So a couple points from my perspective on this whole thing is, um, I know there's probably a person or two sitting somewhere listening to this going, well, I would never want to miss a birthday or an anniversary or any of those things. So one, you, you do have consequences that you have to weigh when you're making decisions about what you want for your personal career. But secondarily, and really most importantly, for those of us who are watching you on social media who maybe don't have as close of a perspective as I, but nonetheless, what building your book of business to this size has now afforded you is, come on, kids, mom's got to go on a business trip, and I have enough resources that not only am I going, but we all can go. And if there is a sacrifice to be made, at least knowing that the possibility of that sacrifice can be finite, and that if you are successful in your endeavor, that the opportunity for that time away doesn't have to be the same. It can shift. And mm -hmm. ha I mean, what I, I've watched it, but talk about what it's meant to you as a mom to have that opportunity to have your kids and family with you in those moments. And, and does it does it feel like success to you? Does that feel like an accomplishment to you? Does that just feel like a natural evolution of Jill as she's grown as a salesperson? Like, what does that represent to you at this stage of your career? Um. It makes you appreciate all the hard work you put in. I will say that. And it does feel like a natural evolution for me. Um, it's very hard to communicate, you know, to my children what I do. <laughs> um, you know, we do all these things with all these products and it's very hard to explain. So I do appreciate now getting to bring my daughter because, you know, she's nine. Um, my son's soon. He's, he's, he's still too young to appreciate it yet. <laughs> Um, but along and to sit in and listen and, and to let them know, especially, like I said, coming from a small town in Ohio, that there's a lot of additional opportunities and a lot of, um, you know, other things out there for them and for them to get to see it. And um, my life and my work really flow all, all into one. Um, I would say I feel like I'm at a place where I have a fabulous work-life balance from the standpoint of, you know, there's definitely in the 14-hour days when you're on a plane and it's crazy but I'm also working from home today in my sweatpants <laughs> as well as yeah. on, on this Google Hangout. And um, it's pretty comfortable. And my kids are off school today and they're running about with two friends and the rest of the house. And I can, you know, work and, and spend time with them while I'm working. Um, so you, in this role, you can pretty much work from wherever you have a laptop. And um, that's a very beautiful thing. Um, and like I said, we do travel quite a bit and it's nice because we can travel, we can all go together and I can catch up for the first half of the day. And then in the evening, we're exploring whatever city we're in and whatnot. Um, but that's my other love is, is travel. That's what, you know, if I was not to be in promotional products, I would be on some 
world global travel show (laughs) and exploring this world that is ours. So that's my other passion, but, um, that's what I choose, you know, for my passion to be is, you know, to get to see places and and go places and do things with the family and my friends. Well, and to me, what's poignant about this is, you know, our industry is comprised largely of people who are doing this so that they can be home with their kids or to Mm -hmm. have a second job for extra income or, you know, whatever, whatever, Whatever reason that leads many, many people towards our industry from a, a, a quality of life perspective. So we know that there's an allure there, but I think a lot of times, you know, there's probably someone listening right now that maybe has a half million dollar book of business and feels like, oh my God, like I can't imagine trying to grow tenfold from here because of what that would do to me and what it, what it might cost me from a time away perspective. So for me, it's nice to let people have the chance to see that yeah, you may have to go through a sacrifice in that growth stage, but that it, A, it doesn't have to be forever, and B, that there can be some really cool perks for your family on the other side of it if that's the choice that you decide to make. So um, great, great points there. So mm-hmm. at $5 million, you're playing in the big leagues, kid. So um, I know from my own perspective that, you know, to scale a distributor salesperson's book of business at a million dollars can be a challenge. So when you're looking at just uh, that versus five million, you know I've got a million questions when it comes to that. But let me let me try to get um, as specific about the question as I possibly can. So um, I, I've seen it um, from my own perspective on the outside looking in that you guys, you specifically, but maybe even Shumsky itself, like you guys have a willingness to invest in things that look like a, will- a winning business model, right? So like. I look at Boost and I feel like that's a that's a classic example of seeing an opportunity and being willing to make the investment to make it be successful. So how has your $5 million book of business had a transformative effect on Shumsky? Like how, how have they had to re-engineer themselves in order to be able to continue to allow you to grow your book the way you've been able to do it? Well, I'm in a unique position because I'm – you know, I manage salespeople and I, I, I call it um, player coach. You know, I still play and sell and I coach and I am involved with all the other reps, some, you know, um, within the organization and helping them win business too. So, I, you know, I've had my hands in a lot of other accounts that I'm not handling on my own. But, um, you know, in, in scaling both my business and the organization's business, um, because we've grown year over end significantly every year since I've been with the company, um, you have to invest in technology. I mean, it's changing right now, you know, with what's going on with GDPR. If you were working with global clients or shipping globally at all, it's a big deal. Um, Also online security is a huge deal. And the way that companies are securing themselves now within large business, it's much harder to set up a website with them and get into their systems and, and win that. So, um, you know, really aligning yourself with, you know, someone in a technology place um, to be able to even play in that space is going to be important for people. Um, and I think, too, from a compliance standpoint and safety of products, if you want to work with big companies, you have to look where you're sourcing your goods. And if, um, you know, they're socially compliant and safety compliant, um, there's a lot of Prop 65 changes coming down the pike as well. Um, big ones. If anybody lives in California, you know, there's a sign on everything that says 
you will die if you use this item. You're going to get cancer tomorrow. <laughs> yep. And more of that coming. Um, I don't know if I necessarily believe in it because it says it on everything now. So who really pays attention? Um, but I mean, it's a way that people can find people and make money for the state. So I guess that's good for them. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there, there's a lot that somebody has to consider when thinking about growing and scaling their business outside of, of their, you know, smaller local accounts and getting into clients who are going to purchase um, a significant amount of products and being ready to provide um, all the time, energy, and effort to support that business. And if it's profitable for you after that, because, you know, it might not be profitable. You can, you know, you can have 10, $100,000 accounts versus $1 million account, and they might each be, you know, more profitable and a higher margin and less headache for you than the one big one, you know, and you're at a lot less risk if you, you know, have 10, hundred thousand dollar accounts versus one million dollar account. I always say grow your business like a pyramid. You want a base of smaller business and then the next level, you know, a little bit bigger. And then, you know, those elephants are the icing on the cake at the very top. Yep. And, yep. Uh, you know, those are, you know, your gravy day. Everybody needs to have, you know, a couple gravy years in this industry, but you know, that doesn't last forever always. And you have to be prepared uh, to help yourself diversify because every mother, brother, cousin, something, 22,000 distributors out there today. And you need to make sure each piece of your business is profitable. Um, so that's how I would prepare if I was moving to scale right now. So, so we typically know what the know traditional what model looks like from the like, way of distributorship yeah, would be built. So knowing that, do you feel like that you guys have taken a different approach? Or if I were to sit in the bullpen at Chomsky, that the roles and responsibilities would look similar to another distributor shop? No, we're definitely different. Um, I have a, I have an account management base that handles a lot of the day-to-day for a lot of my accounts so I can go out and help strategically grow more accounts. Like, if you're doing it on your own, you know, it's going to be very hard, um, you know, for you to scale. You can think about, you know, one support person per million to $2 million of business. Um, I have two to three depending upon the day, um, support team members on my business that, you know, which frees me up to go out and do a world woman-owned business. We, um, you know, go to a lot of diversity shows and network with, you know, folks who that's important to um, them and their supplier base. Um, So that allows me to do that. But you have to be someone who can let go and be able to delegate, you know, give really good direction to somebody and turn somebody into – you know, the next level of you. And, and some people don't want to do that. You know, they're like, nope, I want to have my hands all over it. I want to do it myself. And it's probably not for you. But the worst thing that can happen is you stretch yourself too far and you're not giving your, your clients the service that they demand and deserve. And you're um, overstretched and, you know, and the customer is seeing that. Um, that can happen when you grow because you might not be able to bring on great talent right away. You need to find the right person. So if that's happening to you, I would have the conversations with the clients. Say I'm out there looking for another great support person. So we have more bandwidth. You know, if you know of anybody that would be awesome, let me know. Um, we're in this in-between stage. So, you know, we would appreciate your support during this time of growth. You know, if you're open and transparent with what's going on, they're going to be much more understanding than they just think that you're not getting back to them quickly enough. Um, but I would say really get in front of that before it happens because it can be it can be challenging and can be strain your team. You know, people can get too stressed out when you're really busy and, um, you know, 
if team members aren't happy, that's the worst thing that you can have going on as well, because happy employees first makes happy customers. No, no doubt. No doubt. And so I, I'm envisioning again, the listener. So we've got somebody out there that has a million dollar book of business. They're doing it all on their own, or maybe they've been given one support person and you know, they're, they're feeling like they're bumping their head up against the ceiling of their own ability from just a pure threshold and bandwidth perspective. Mm-hmm. What I see a lot of times is people are sort of handcuffed in this transition between, I know I've got to A, give part of my money to someone mm-hmm. that I'm going to bring in to support my business, and I two, I have to train them, which means I'm not going to be able to have that time to be out selling, so I'm going to give part of my money away, I'm going to give a fair amount of my time away, which means I'm going to make less money because I'm not going to sell as much. But the interesting thing to me is that I feel like I, I hear a lot of people often say to me like, oh my God, like I have no more time. I can't grow my business anymore. I'm completely at the end of my wits. And when you start expressing to them, like there's these opportunities for you to be able to do these things. The first thing you hear is, oh, like I can't do that. And I can't do that. And I wouldn't be able to do that. And I, I here's what I know from our time at Workflow One together. Mm-hmm. When you and I had a big quarter We couldn't sell very much the next quarter because we were too busy implementing last quarter's business. So so if you don't take a healthy eye towards if I am best used as an organization resource by being out in front of customers, what is it really costing the organization for me to make those decisions that are self-limiting? And you, as a member of the Shemsky team, I think are standing on the other side of that decision saying there's hope. If you're willing and able to make that leap, both from uh, if you're willing to make the time investment to be away from your family, to grow your book to the size that it is, and you're willing to give away some of your time and your money to somebody who can help support your business, then the future can be bright for you. But to, to expect that you're going to be able to do it differently without doing those things is going to be a challenge. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, it, it's not that it can be done, but it's likely to be one big order one year that you have like, wow, I got that great order. You might get it for, you know, five years. You might get it for a little while, but it's not long, long standing amount of business. And yeah, because you can't, nobody can do anything on their own. And I feel like work smarter, not harder. How can you make the back end work more efficient for you and your team? How can you maybe have that one weekly call with a customer that you have an agenda prepared for and you go through everything you need to get through with them for the week or the month. And then you have a move forward versus all this back and forth. Um, how can you streamline processes and protocol? And it's really, you know, pushing that downward and giving good directive underneath to, you know, invest in the growth. And, and that's why I'd say any investment that you make, you're going to put money into to get money back and um, you either invest in growth or, you don't. That's completely fine, too. It's about your lifestyle. I mean, there's people who stay in a place of fun. It's like, this is fun, and I'm making great money, and I don't want to get out of it. There is nothing at all wrong with that. Nothing. There's something to be said for that. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm to the place where, you know, I think I'm in fun. I mean, we're still in growth, but that's that's fun for me. Um, but you need to, you know, be in a place that's comfortable for you and the way that you work. And so just because somebody else is doing it that way doesn't mean it, you know, it's going to work for everyone. Good. Great lesson there. You don't have to grow if you don't want to grow. And there's no shame in staying where you're at. The only challenge is 
being protective of risk when you are in a stasis mode. And to your point about the pyramid, you know, the other thing that you and I used to talk about all the time is you need to kill rabbits while you're hunting elephant so that everybody mm-hmm. has a chance to eat. And if you have a account base of all elephants and you're in stasis mode, you are vulnerable. So mm-hmm. staying... And that depends on what your role and responsibility is. Sometimes there's elephant hunters out there in an organization. I mean, there's not that many elephant hunters in our business. There's more rabbit hunters. Um, but there's jobs where you can be an elephant hunter. And then there's people that are doing both and you're trying to manage your whole business. So... Once again, you need to really look at what you need to be for the company you're working for and what you need to be for yourself and and make sure that, like I said, you can sleep at night because your business is diverse enough. Yeah, no, yeah, no doubt. Sleeping at night is key. <laughs> uh, so, um, so here we are. It is April, basically April 2018. So if, if we were sitting and nobody else was listening... And I said, so Jill, what does the future hold for you? And, and where do you see the roller coaster of an industry going? Like, what, what's your viewpoint from where you're sitting? Well, what I alluded to earlier on is that this business is changing faster than I've ever seen it change before. Um, these acquisitions are hitting us. I mean, you're seeing the news weekly. And um, I think the bigs will continue to get bigger. And I think that You know, the smaller distributors are going to have to niche themselves, make sure that you know your niche and what you're good at and can't be everything to everyone. Um, Really specializing, you know, for example, like Portland, Oregon, there's places where you can go buy leather made hats from grass fed cows that are, you know, branded on the side. And that's all they sell. And that store has been there for years and years and years and years. And it's successful because they specialize in what they're good at. Um, you know, I think that there is any room for those folks as well in, in the distributor world, but um, I think that's what's going to happen next. I think you know these acquisitions that are happening. I don't think it's any you know ending anytime soon. And uh, I'm excited. I'm excited for the future, but I don't think that the distributor supplier model is gone by the wayside at all. I think it's around for a little while at least. When when we're all sitting around having adult beverages, the conversation frequently turns to this. Um, trend of venture capital making its way into the industry and what the, what that might mean. You know, on the positive side of it, people say venture capital money comes into a marketplace when they see opportunity. Mm-hmm. On the other side of that, people say venture capital comes into a marketplace when they see an ability to disrupt. So yeah. the fact that we're seeing this influx suggests that one or both of those things are true. So, so that's that's on the insider part of things. Let me ask you from from your time competing for enterprise transactions. What are some mm-hmm. of the things that you're hearing in those larger opportunities that are new? What's stuff that you know for the distributor salesperson that doesn't call in enterprise accounts? There's this trickle down effect, which essentially is whatever happens at the corporate enterprise level ultimately will make its way down to the street over a period of time. So, from your vantage point in your meetings with your clients, what are some of the new stuff that you're starting to hear requests for from, from the questions they're asking you? Um, I don't think these things are necessarily brand new. I mean, they might've been talked about for 10 years, but it's like an everyday occurrence now. So people think it's just happened. Um, the one piece order that you can have ship in one to two days, every procurement person wants to reduce their overall inventory, you know, how can we reduce this inventory at risk? Because there's so many product launches, you know, 
people used to have one product launch a year, January, Vegas, or Orlando, boom, product launch. Now it's three, four, five times a year, right? Yeah. Um, everybody wants the newest, latest, hottest, greatest thing right now. So um, procurement folks are very in tune to um, reducing their inventory overall risk and, and one-piece minimums. Um, whether it be embroider on demand so you can go choose your size online and not have to stock eight sizes in, in a certain color. Um, that is what everybody's asking for. Everybody's also asking for faster turn times. People expect to come to you and you can have everything for them in a matter of days. And it's just their perception, you know, and that's how the world works today. They really have to manage that. Because you don't want to, you know, have them incur too much rush freight. You have to manage that backwards. So it's a misperception. Definitely. <laughs> because yeah. there are really faster products, but a majority of the products still are not. So um, that's something we're hearing more and well, more and more of. And even if, for instance, Brando Logistics is happy to sell a minimum order quantity of one, but there's still a setup charge. So, oh, so that, yeah. that $30 tumbler suddenly is a $75 tumbler. And while... The uh, procurement people may want to mitigate their inventory risk. The minute that you start talking about unit pieces in the $75 range, all of a sudden the conversation gets real hairy. So it's, it's um, a management of expectations perspective. But I will say, to your point, within the industry, the suppliers, I mean, we, every day we're working on how can we help support that model. So... Definitely the appetite for the industry is turning towards being able to meet that demand. I just don't know what it's going to do to the overall revenue of the industry as a whole over time. Or the profitability. Right. You know, how profitable is it for people to be doing this and is the business they want? Um, you know, that's what I think about. And I, you know, when we say setups and less than minimum fees and run charges, I, you know, this is a looking to the future um, kind of comment, but I have a feeling a disruptor will come into the business that says no more of this. Yep, definitely. Um, when I think of buying online and making it easy, where do you buy from? Places that make it easy. Right. Well, then this is screwed up as possible. So, um, you know, that's what's the mystique in our distributor sales. You know, we know where to get every little thing and we know which one we don't have to pay less than minimums for. And we know who will do it for us in two days when the turn time is seven. And <laughs> so there is, you know, some art in the science of this business and knowing that and, um, and, and knowing the business and knowing the folks in the business. But um, I, I feel like a disruptor will come in, like you said, from the venture capital place or from a place of acquisition that will say, make it easy for people and you either need to get on board or we're not going to carry your line. Yeah. So that might be happening in the next couple of years. Well, I was just going to say, so let's use April 1st as your and my, uh, uh, milestone date. And we're going to, we're going to place the bets now on the over under as to how long it'll take from this day forward before we come back and say, look, it actually happened widespread. So uh, I think two years or less is a very good indicator. So uh, anybody who's thinking it's going to take longer than that, be on the lookout because I think it's going to happen sooner. So as is always the case, this has been tremendously fun. It's always good to talk to you and 
I always love the opportunity to get your perspective from what it looks like from the mountaintops. So thank you for uh, spending that time with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And uh, it's been great catching up.